парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the fourth in Reese's Fall 2019 Speakers series, Nuclear Fallout, Science and Society in Eurasia. For previous episodes in the series, go to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, or the Nuclear Series playlist on the podcast's SoundCloud page. The dangerous decades-long arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War begged a fundamental question. How did these superpowers actually plan to survive a nuclear strike? In his book, Armageddon Insurance, my guest Edward Geist provides the first historical account of Soviet civil defense and a reappraisal of its American counterpart to show how each country's efforts reflected its cultural preoccupations and blind spots, and reveals how American and Soviet civil defense related to profound issues of nuclear strategy and national values. In the end, the two superpowers tried, and mostly failed, to reinforce their societies to withstand the ultimate catastrophe. Edward Geist is an associate policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. His research interests include Russian defense policy, civil defense, artificial intelligence, nuclear weapons, and particularly the potential impact of emerging technologies on nuclear strategy. His new book is Armageddon Insurance, Civil Defense in the United States and Soviet Union, 1945 to 1991, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Here's Edward Geist. So, just to start, um, you know, your book, Armageddon Insurance, Civil Defense in the United States and the Soviet Union, 1945 to 1991. And as I said, when I, when I first met you in Moscow, you were a very interesting guy interested in bomb shelters. Um, so I wanted to start by just having you talk about how you got interested in this particular topic. Right. So I was uh, kind of born and raised in the nuclear village. So I'm from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is a it's a little bit west of Knoxville. It's a city that was founded during the Second World War to make the uranium for the original atom bomb. So growing up in that sort of milieu, it's like, well, it's surrounded by like nuclear facilities and nuclear scientists. The guy who was in the house next to me growing up had been in Oak Ridge since the mid 40s actually doing did reactor development for the nuclear powered manned bomber program and so being around this milieu the i developed sort of a, a interest in these nuclear uh, issues and in particular in civil defense which had a distinctive history in oak ridge so for instance it's like the fallout shelter signs were and are still kind of common but like the there was also a unique uh 
local civil defense community that I write about some in my book. And I actually knew some of these people. So Joanne Guilar, who I mentioned as like, well, she like went to my church when I was growing up and she had spent a lot of her career writing about and advocating for civil defense and actually had a hand in developing a unique civil defense program that actually only existed in Oak Ridge among these uh, uh, enthusiasts who had managed to convince the city government to go along with their plans. What is civil defense? So civil defense is the use of passive measures to protect against uh, enemy attack or other disasters. So civil defense is things like bomb shelters and evacuation, whereas things that you use to actually try and intercept the attack before it hits uh, so are active defenses. So like anti-aircraft guns, uh, anti-ballistic missiles, like lasers in space, those are active defenses as opposed to civil defenses, which are things that don't involve actually preventing the bombs from going off. They're about mitigating their effects once they have. Um, did, so is, does this meaning of civil defense the same in the Soviet Union and the United States, or are there different understandings of it? Because I remember, you know, like looking at, say, the 1930s, you see a, a different type of, it seems more of a militaristic type civil defense. So what are the similarities and differences? So in both of the, the superpowers, the understanding of civil defense evolved over time. So the, the Soviet civil defense program really got started in earnest in the 20s. And my, I argue in the book that it was originally, it was actually a sort of mass mobilization uh, gimmick almost, that the, there's the 1927 war scare, which was actually one of a series of war scares, but the most important of the, the war scares of that period. And during the war scare that they wanted to engage in this mass mobilization, which at the time it turns out that the Soviet Union did not really have a substantial mass mobilization capacity. And one of the mechanisms for trying to engage the public was this, uh, what at, at the time was called just like anti-air defense in Russian. The, so there were these officially volunteer organizations that in the 20s actually were to a substantial degree volunteer organizations for things like anti-chemical weapons defense and for anti-air defense. And these coexisted with uh, other sort of military patriotic organizations that in 1927 were largely merged into something called Oso Aviachim, the which is the Volunteer Society for Assistance to Aviation, the uh, the chemical industry and uh, have the, uh, yeah, I guess that's the defense aviation and the chemical industry. I'm sorry, I forgot one of the O's. So civil defense such as existed in the Soviet Union in the 30s was officially established in 1932 under the auspices of the uh, Red Army as uh, local anti-air defense is literally what it was called. And so local anti-air defense was exactly what it sounded like. Like it was specifically about defense against local, like uh, air attack on a local scale. So it's like building things like bomb shelters, training people to put on and wear gas masks and so on and so forth. The propaganda and public training components of this were actually entirely offloaded onto Oso Avihim, which was technically not a government organization, even though the official uh, like leadership of it were very high ranking party leaders for the most part. And so in the, this period, it transitions from being what it was in the 20s, which is uh, something of an aspirational capability intended to engage Soviet young people as part of the defense of the Soviet project into a more concrete sort of like actual existing capacity. So they start building some bomb shelters. In the 30s, there still weren't that many of them, but the, there were these public training drills and like they would actually do crazy things like in uh, 
what is the, the movie called Burnt by the Sun? Uh -huh. So the portrayal of Soviet soul defense in the 30s and Burnt by the Sun is a little bit inaccurate. They pull up the whole grob joke. So the, for that's the a uh, contraction of the Russian name for civil defense, Grushenska Barona. But in the 30s, it's not called Grushenska Barona yet. It's not renamed that until 1961. The so, but they actually did do some of these crazy things. That it's like, oh, we're going to do like you know, like a foot race wearing gas masks. And if any of you have ever worn a gas mask, you know just how completely insane that is. And they were doing stuff like that. There were these contests, it's like, oh, we're going to have a local anti-air defense sort of contest with, oh, who can like dig the fastest? Who can put on their gas mask the fastest? Who can like run, you know, laps wearing their gas mask? It's, uh, and this was just part of the Stalinist sort of like increasingly militarized culture in the 30s. The in the 40s, of course, is like the Germans invade and they actually have to use this stuff. Mm -hmm. And partially because the, the Nazis were not particularly interested in strategic bombing in the way that the other that the allied uh, or at least the U.S. And, uh, and Great Britain were. The scale of the of the German bombing raids on Soviet cities, like compared to what happened to the cities in Japan and Germany late in the war, it's just it's actually pretty trivial. But the Soviets came out of the war thinking that their civil defense actually performed pretty well and they retain a lot of it. The in the U.S. we had a, a civil defense program during the Second World War, but at that time it was called civilian defense. So the famous sort of like circular logo with the triangle and the CD in the middle, like that was introduced in 1941, actually a few months before Pearl Harbor. The but this program, what happened is that the war starts, and for a short period, people are really, really concerned. like, oh, the like, Japanese bombers are going to show up any day now. And then nothing happens. And it becomes apparent pretty quickly. is like, okay, like, the Japanese aren't actually going to bomb the mainland. So, like, so, like, millions of people volunteered for civilian defense, and they had nothing to do. And this, gave, this actually gave civil defense a really bad reputation that it never quite managed to shake. It's like, oh, it's just a waste of time. It's like, well, like, we all signed up for it, and then we didn't do anything. So after the war, the term civil defense is invented by these guys in the Pentagon who are trying to rebrand because of that problem. It's like, well, we need to rebrand civilian defense into civil defense in order to emphasize that it's not that thing that we did before that ended up not being useful. It's... Only at the end of the 50s, after this kind of near-death experience that Soviet civil defense had, that it's rebranded as from anti-air defense to civil defense. So in 1959, uh, under the influence of Anastas Mikoyan, who apparently even in the pre-nuclear area had sort of thought that civil defense was something of a waste of time, decided to just cancel the entire Soviet civil defense program, which in the mid to late 50s was actually pretty substantial. And... So one of the after effects of this is that they fired basically the entirety of the civil defense staff except for the small core of people who were transferred into the Ministry of Defense. And they latched onto this idea that, oh, well, we need to advocate for civil defense as opposed to anti-air defense as uh, a, an essential component of Soviet defense capacity in like this thermonuclear missile era. Right. And so they managed to... Actually, well, they were very successful in part due to the Berlin crisis uh, in convincing the Soviet leadership that, oh, we need to revive uh, civil defense, not as anti-air defense, but as civil defense, as an all-encompassing defense program. So so what was, I mean, it, I mean, this is one of the kind of confusing things in, in this whole process of, you know, 
clearly in the beginning and, and possibly with the technology of nuclear weapons in the, in the 50s, surviving a, a, you know, a post-nuclear society is absolutely conceivable. And then by the time you get ballistic missiles and mutually de assured destruction, I would imagine that survival is less of an issue. So what was civilian defense supposed to do in the event of a nuclear attack? Of course, this really evolved over time because of what these issues you alluded right. to. So like in the late 40s, there were not that many atomic bombs. The, at the time, they, like, they, it took them a while to actually iron out the problem of mass producing them. At first, there just wasn't enough fissile material available to make that many weapons. And the delivery systems are, of course, these prop-driven bombers that are actually really fragile. And so, like, you have this late 40s beginning in the 50s environment. You have these prop-driven bombers that don't go very fast that you can chase down in the jet interceptors that have just been invented. So the MiG-15 was famous for these dogfights in Korea, but that thing was designed as an interceptor to chase down American uh, prop-driven strategic bombers. And so, like, the notion of, like, well, there's, there's like, a defense, right? Because you've got, you know, like, one, one or two pretty nominal bombs in each of those bombers they're not that many bombers the and you have a really plausible chance of like shooting those bombers down so you would expect to have you know like uh, a nuclear war where there are not that many of these weapons detonated there were at least fanciful hopes that oh well we'll be able to build uh air to uh surface to air missiles that will be able to shoot down the, these bombers. So the SA-1 defense system that built in the Soviet Union, like the official order was that we want no American bombers whatsoever to reach Moscow. That was the, the development order and that's what they were trying to do. The, so the idea being that you'd have a relatively small number of destroyed cities, that those cities would be destroyed with relatively limited yield uh, weapons compared to those that would come later. And so the, both we and the Soviets did the math on this, and the conclusion came, it's like, oh, okay, actually, this isn't really that much worse than World War II. Mm -hmm. It's like World War II, you've got, you know, this enormous Nazi army rolls in, like, actually takes over a bunch of the country. So it's like, like not only is it, like, it's unavailable to you, but not, it's not been destroyed. It's like the adversary is using it to feed their army that's still invading. But, but Hiroshima, like the, the effects of, of what they witnessed in Hiroshima, how did that change that calculation of, of I mean, you know, clearly they, they, they saw that the entire city was destroyed and possibly the coming of an army wasn't a f as much of a factor. I don't, I don't know. Right. So at the time, the, the, both we and the Soviets were actually pretty dismissive of the effects of the atomic bombs in Japan, which is kind of impressive given that the, well, dismissive in the sense that like there's the United States strategic bombing survey you know, after the war that basically concludes the strategic bombing didn't attain its strategic objectives. That we destroyed all these cities, but it didn't actually end up affecting, like, destroying morale the way it was intended to. It didn't end up affecting production the way it was uh, expected to. The rightly or wrongly, like, historians still argue about this, but the, that was the conclusion that was drawn. And there was a political element of this in the Soviet case where, well, the atomic monopoly was the linchpin of the Western uh, defense strategy. So Stalin just like actually insisted, he made a statement in an interview, I guess in 1946, that he said that, well, the atomic bomb is n only something that can weaken, that can frighten a weak nerved people. And obviously the Soviet people were nothing of, of that sort. So the, the crazy part was that everybody at the time, including apparently members of Stalin's inner circle, 
assumed that, well, Stalin, like, well, he just said that because he had to. Like, he can't possibly believe that, right? But it turns out that now that we have documents about this, the other members of the Soviet sort of like leadership, including the people running the atomic project, basically were hinting once the Soviet Union had the bombs, like, okay, we can, we can walk this back now because we've got our own, right? So like we don't have to pretend that the atomic bomb is like, you know, a paper tiger, as Mao said a few years later. And then Stalin doesn't walk it back. It's like he actually acted at least as though he genuinely believed this, which is flabbergasting, but seems to be what the evidence indicates. But like Mao seems to have genuinely believed the same thing too. So like it's not so right. unprecedented. It's just that the, the Soviet assessment was that, well, the kind of destruction that these weapons do, when you actually look at the totals, like the number of people who are killed in Japan by not just the atomic bombings, but the overall bombing campaigns, like by the standards of Soviet civilian casualties during the Second World War, it's actually not that high. What about on the American side? Where is it, were they just as dismissive? So it was a mixed bag because on the one hand, we had to argue that the atomic monopoly could do the thing that politically and strategically we wished for it to do. On the other hand, we didn't want to admit that like we had nuked civilians using an experimental nuclear weapon and that like maybe that didn't win the war for us. It was a it, it was a very complicated set of politics that uh, we only sort of half succeeded at threading, I think. Talk about bomb shelters, because, of course, you know, you had shelters of a variety of sorts in mm. World War Two. But, you know, it you know, some of the uh, the kind of images of civil defense in the United States really focus on the bomb shelter and particularly the individual bomb shelter rather than the collective one that's in a, you know, underground in a city. Um, and then, it, of course, it's connected to this whole phenomenon of atomic culture in the United States. So talk about this history of bomb shelters and how it played out in both societies. So as I alluded earlier, it's like bomb shelters existed in the Soviet Union I, the earliest one I found reference to being built in civilian construction was actually in the House on the Embankment to around 1932-ish, as I understand. And But it, before the war, they're actually pretty rare. I did manage to get some doc, like archival documentation about shelters from the immediate post-war period. And there are a few shelters built before the German invasion in there, but... Most of them that existed in the 50s were actually built during, during the war in the 40s, at least in Moscow. The, so initially, the, the Soviet shelters, there were some of the shelters even in the 30s that were designed for chemical attack. So they would have like air filters and things. The, but most of them are basically just a slightly reinforced basement of that. If not just like, well, we've done a survey of this building. We think that like the basement is sturdy enough that like the, there are bombs going off around here. We think that the people in the basement will survive. And so we sort of put this in our shelter manifest, and this is our shelter now. And into the post-war period, a lot of shelters, that's what they are. After the, it's only, in the Soviet Union, it's only in, after Stalin died and the post-Stalin leadership decided that they wanted to emphasize civil defense, that they developed a set of shelter regulations that are designed for the sort of like early nuclear environment, which they, ironically is like the time, around the time they made this decision is when the hydrogen bomb becomes practical. So they're designing the shelters for the Hiroshima type sort of like few tens of kilotons yield weapon, but multi-megaton weapons were not just, not only had they been tested, but they're entering the U.S. arsenal in substantial quantities at this time. So this is behind the times, but the orders that the party had given to design the civil defense program are designed around the earlier threat and remain that way for the remainder of the 50s. Uh, so what the consequence of this is that there's actually a pretty substantial 
shelter construction program in Soviet cities during the 50s, but it's not building fallout shelters. It's building these sort of like nominal blast shelters. So like a lot of these Khrushchevki and things that are being put up in the in the 50s, like they actually have these bomb shelters integrated into them. The, there were not enough bomb shelters for everyone, and this was one of the problems. It's like, in theory, if you read the civil defense manuals, it basically said, oh, you live in a city, there's going to be a bomb shelter for you somewhere. Like, the reality, if you actually looked even at a place like Moscow that probably had a lot more shelters than usual, there are nowhere near enough shelter spaces for the number of people living in the city, even including the metro and all of that. So they hadn't quite figured out what the policy was going to be other than, like, we're going to stuff the people we can grab into these shelters that the alarms ever go off and slam the doors closed. Like, that seems to have been the, pra the practical plan as opposed to what the the official plan was that, oh, we expect to have enough strategic warning that we can move the people we can't filter into the shelters out of town. And, and, and was this based on the idea that people weren't going to be in these shelters that long after a nuclear attack? Right. So it's not expecting at this time, like Soviet shelters don't norm, didn't normally have food in them, for instance. It's like here we have these shelters that are like the signs for like the... And those shelters, like, they'll have these, like, tinned biscuits and stuff and chemical toilets and things. I mean, you're supposed to stay in them for a couple of weeks. The Soviet Union, like, the, the idea was that when they started thinking you'd have to stay longer, it's like, bring your own food. Then, in theory, they were supposed to put food in the shelters, like, right before the attack. But, the, like, there isn't, like, a stockpile of food in the shelters just day to day. Uh, in the U.S., the shelters... Uh, there were generally much many fewer of them other than these sort of community fallout shelters in the 60s. So they, after the Federal Civil Defense Administration was founded in late 50, uh, 1950, one of its first priorities was to actually try and get congressional support for this huge public shelter program that would have built blast shelters much like the Soviet program actually did. But they couldn't get Congress to sign off on it for reasons that actually don't make a whole lot of logical sense, right? That the because like at the time, the Congress was actually approving all sorts of like crazy things and the assumption that the Korean War is basically just like the opening phase of World War III. It's like this is, you know, it's like the Japanese and Manchuria all over again. It's like this is just the opening feint and then like they're going to maybe they're going to be rolling into Germany, Western Germany pretty soon. So we've got to get ready for this. But the Congress is like, oh, no, like building these bomb shelters is a boondoggle. We don't want to pay for this. It's like here's money for more nuclear bombers, but don't don't buy this. So they don't end up building uh, these blast shelters, even though there are signs put up in a few places, sometimes just on a local initiative. After the introduction of the, the hydrogen bomb as a practical thing in the mid-50s, of course, like there's this push for fallout shelters, and the Federal Civil Defense Administration actually tried to go the Eisenhower administration and say, it's like, oh, no, it's like, like the Soviets have the hydrogen bomb, too. The, it turns out that civil defense was actually ahead of the curve in suggesting that the Soviets might actually get ICBMs in the near term. It's like as of like 1953-54, they were about the only people in Washington who were actually saying that. It's like, oh, well, like the, the ICBM might be a near term thing because the time people were saying, oh, this is 25 years out. You know, it's going to be like late 70s or 1980 by the time that ICBMs are practical. And... So they ended up being ahead of the curve, but they were making this argument that, oh, well, like, because of this, we have to build this shelter system. Yeah. And... But it was individual. I mean... Well, well, they, there's a, well, so they were arguing we need to have, like, the tens of billions of dollars on a federal public shelter system. Okay. And so the Eisenhower administration basically came back and says, like, oh, no, we're not doing that. So I come up with something that will assuage, like, there were a handful of influential civil defense advocates in Congress, like, guys like uh, Shet Holofield, S.S. Kefauver, the, did I just mangle their names? I don't know. 
If I did, I, I cut that from the interview. It's a, anyway, but they, they needed to be assuaged. And so the Eisenhower administration's civil defense policy, so far as I can tell, was substantially basically keeping up appearances to convince these guys that something was being done because they could create problems for the administration if they wanted to, while not actually doing anything that cost any money. So what they did is they considered this public shelter program, rejected it, and then decided, like, well, we have to have a private fallout shelter program. So our solution, the solution to the H-bomb is tell people to, like, build their own fallout shelters, which is a terrible policy. It's like everybody hated this. It's like the ban the bomb peaceniks were not common in the 50s but existed were like, well, this is insane. It's like, why are we doing this? And the civil defense advocates were like, this isn't going to work. We need the, the public shelter program. How much did the bomb shelter it depended on how elaborate you wanted your bomb shelter to be. So the civil defense put out these manuals and it's like, oh, you can build a bomb shelter for like a few hundred dollars worth of materials. Mm -hmm. And like in the 1950s, that actually, like it wasn't super expensive, but it also wasn't cheap for something that you don't really want to use. Yeah. The And that was also didn't make for much of a shelter, right? right. Of course, they were also suggesting that well, you can improvise one, right? It's like you, it's the dirt that does it. You like take your doors off and you go outside and you dig a trench and you put the doors over the trench and then you pile the dirt that you used to, you dug out of the trench on top of the doors. And like, it sounds like a whole lot of fun uh -huh. because it is. <laughs> um, no, the, the fact that they had all of this civil defense and they were, you know, planning on people surviving they they had to imagine what a post nuclear society would look like. Right. So what what did they imagine after people were in these bomb shelters for X amount of time, and then you have to come out at some point? Like, and what did they you know what kind of what did they think was going to be around, and how did civil defense play a role in that post nuclear attack? You have to separate out the sort of like portrayal in the civil defense manuals, which actually isn't nearly as sanguine a lot of the time as people imagine that it was. But if they've got these wonderful sort of like period mid-century illustrations in them, right, of people like like wearing ties and like uh, cocktail party dresses, like getting into these bomb shelters and then sort of sitting around the bomb shelters. And then like maybe they emerge, but it doesn't really explain what like the post-attack environment looks like. And, the, and it's sort of ridiculous and people make fun of it, like in the Atomic Cafe and yeah. so on. But like it... And it's like the guy, people who were actually running a civil defense organization, they, they didn't think that. It's like, and it wasn't because they were deceptive. Part of it was that they outsourced the production of these sort of propaganda materials to literally advertisers a lot of the time. Like they would hire ad agencies to make these things. And then it turns out that the people running the civil defense organizations didn't actually monitor them that closely. So they came up with some of the like really gonzo stuff. And a lot of it got pushed out the door almost mindlessly, I think. The whereas you read their internal documentation and a lot of it is like, look, it's like we know this is a terrible problem. And like they believe in the possibility of nuclear war because there was a real possibility of one at the time. Right. And so they're like, OK, well, what do we do if like because they genuinely believe like the, so the Soviets might just decide up and nuke us. Right. And so we have to have a contingency plan irrespective, like even if this thing isn't survivable, like they seriously thought that the Soviet adversary might be irrational or insane or just that aggressive. So. The, the the first pleading, and this was the pleading behind this giant bomb shelter proposal in the mid-50s, was that it's like, well, we have to do something. It's like, we have to have a contingency plan. Like, if we have these sort of half-baked measures, is like, you know, our civilization is actually going to be destroyed. It's like, it's like the... And part of the difficulty was that there were disagreements within the government about, well, is this even worth doing? Because, like, even if the attack is fairly small, is like, is our society just going to implode? And, of course, the civil defense would say it's like, well... Like, we have to try and mitigate that if it happens. And they did this social science research to try and, like, investigate this problem. Whereas Eisenhower was just like, oh, no, it's like, like, 
like more than a like a handful of cities get get H bombs dropped on them, and like our society is just going to like cease to exist as a meaningful concern, even though like most Americans numerically still be alive. So we shouldn't even plan for that. We should just have massive retaliation. We should plan on just like shellacking the Soviet Union if they ever like act up in any way whatsoever. Does does the calculation change after the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, so it's complicated in the sense that the U.S. nuclear strategy is evolving at that point, right? So the the Eisenhower policy I just alluded to is massive retaliation, as uh, John uh, Foster Dulles dubbed it in 1950. Was it 53 or 54 that he made the speech? The which is contrasted with. Uh, what the, the Kennedy administration's policy is called flexible response. It turns out that flexible response was not a well-defined policy. So they kept using this term over time to refer to various different things that don't, weren't necessarily all pieces of a coherent whole. But the idea being that they were initially one of the hopes is like, okay, well, like if we're gonna have a nuclear war and survive it, maybe we can sort of come to an arrangement that both we and the Soviets will hold off from certain kinds of actions so it's like okay well maybe we can convince them not to nuke our cities it's like we'll tell them basically we won't nuke your cities if you don't nuke our cities and we'll nuke other things maybe we'll nuke germany germany is imminently nukeable the so the problem with this was that the soviets like uh, uh, mcnamara actually explicitly signaled this in his uh, uh the ann arbor speech in 1962 and it turned out that it went over very poorly with everyone. It went over poorly with the NATO allies. With us. like, oh, well, the Americans, not only is this kind of crazy, but like they're selling us out. It's like this is an excuse to sort of disengage from their security guarantees in Europe. Whereas the Soviets looked at this and they're just sort of like, that's crazy. It's like, why would we like, like you're threatening to nuke us, but you're threatening to only nuke us a little bit. And why should we play along with this? Like, it turns out that the Soviet response was actually like, well, the Americans are really worried about their cities. We should do a better job of like threatening their city. So like they go from what they were going to build, which is like a relatively small number of ludicrously large ICBMs carrying like tens of megaton warheads to like, okay, we need to mass produce ICBMs, which by latter day standards are not actually small by any means, but are small by the standards of the time. Each of them carrying about a one megaton warhead and they build about a thousand of those. And you go from the situation where, well, the Soviets only have a few hundred warheads. They have to chase a certain number of targets to the situation where increasingly, and especially once they start putting multiple warheads on those missiles, well, they can just devote a warhead to like all the, the military targets and have plenty left over to nuke all the population centers too. So it's like, there's not a, a like, there's not, weren't places to hide in the way that they expected in the 1960s, even though they already had the missiles and the giant H-bombs. So how did, how did uh, civil defense then figure into things like arms control? Because it sounds like in some respects, one could imagine, well, if there's a belief that society can survive this, um, then there's no reason to not not produce these weapons. Right. So once you get the developments of, say, an anti-nuclear movement or at least an initiatives at some sort of arms control, how does this how does civil defense calculate into that? So it's complicated in that the the logic, the, the sort of strategic logic of this idea of like, oh, well, not only is like we have mutual vulnerability and not only do we have mutual vulnerability, but we want to maybe we want to signal to the adversary that we don't just accept mutual vulnerability. We embrace mutual vulnerability. That we intentionally avoid doing things that signal that we don't accept uh, uh, the state of mutual vulnerability. And so the most famous example of this is the anti-ballistic missiles 
in the 60s. So in the early 60s, at least, there was a lot of hope that anti-ballistic missiles would actually work. The, that we would be able to build comprehensive missile defenses that would be like actually managed to block out a lot of a large scale nuclear attack. And there were a lot of disappointments. The reason that they thought this would work at the time is because they were planning on using pretty large H-bombs on the interceptors. So you'd have like these multi-megaton things that you put on these things that are the size of ICBMs because they need to be to carry something like that that would go up and explode in the like immediate path of the incoming uh, missiles and destroy them. It's like, well, if you've got, it's like, oh, well, you're not hitting a bullet with a bullet then. It's like you're trying to like blow this thing that's the size of a car out of the sky using a giant H-bomb. It's like, well, that's actually not nearly so crazy, right? It turned out that the issue with that was that uh, you start sending off these H-bombs. Like the reason they discovered EMP in 1962 is because they were doing these tests to see if something like this would work. So it turned out that you set off these H-bombs at high altitude, you create EMP effects, you create, you ionize the atmosphere and blind your own radar. So it's like you can't see the second wave of warheads coming in. So it turned out that it was technically impractical for reasons they didn't know at the outset. So, but what happened though was that the this it's baked into the politics of ABM and sort of indirectly the fallout shelter program in the 60s was this idea like well we should embrace vulnerability and not build the ABM and not have the fallout shelter program hmm. so there were it's only at like 1961 or so though that people actually start explicitly saying this in the 50s this is kind of like an exotic argument that didn't seem intuitive to a lot of people hmm. and so there is actually an interesting political interchange because arms control, I think ACTA was founded, was it in 62? So there's actually an arms control and disarmament agency from the 60s through the 90s. And that at the time, of course, arms control was like largely theoretical. But the one of these arguments that was made is like, okay, well maybe we should like incorporate civil defense into arms control. It's like, so Oscar Morgenstern, the famous uh, game theorist and economist actually proposed to the Kennedy administration, well, we should propose the Soviet Union like a, a treaty banning bomb shelters. And that way either the Soviets sign onto it and we have like no bomb shelters or the Soviets refuse and we build our own bomb shelters. The and so he sends this proposal, first the administration, then as an afterthought, sends it to the Office of Civil Defense. And so one of the most interesting things I found in the course of my research was the correspondence both within and, with, and outside of the Office of Civil Defense with outsiders about this proposal. So the interesting thing that they suggested was like, oh, we don't want to reject this idea outright. What they actually proposed was, well, we should have an agreement with the Soviet Union that killing civilians per se is not the goal of nuclear war and should be avoided in the case of nuclear war. And we should cooperate ultimately with the Soviet Union on civil defense. So we can have like technical data exchanges. The, and the idea there is to signal that it's like, okay, well like murdering the adversary population is not the point of nuclear strategy, which is like a different sort of approach to, to uh, the intersection of, of civil defense and arms control. And so part of this sort of like sketch outline that the head of civil defense put forward is like, well, this is a stepping stone to things that would actually meaningfully limit the civilian impact of nuclear war if it occurred. So it's like, he's just like, well, maybe we could use this as a stepping stone to a ban on like multi-megaton yield weapons. How did, how did the public respond to these initiatives? I mean, I know in Soviet Union, it's hard to say because there's no, you know, no survey data, but, you know, say what you can about that. And also in the American case. Civil defense doesn't seem to have ever been popular in any meaningful sense in either superpower. It, 
in the 50s, the U.S. response seems to have been, I'm not sure neutral is quite the right term. Like, there was a lack of enthusiasm of the sort that the, the Federal Civil Defense Administration and its successor agencies always hoped for. Like, the hope was that, well, we'll put out all of this uh, sort of like... Uh, Actually, it is propaganda, but it's like they, they have all of these media campaigns trying to convince people it's like they should become enthusiastic participants in civil defense and they never stick. The In the 50s, there isn't that much outright opposition to the civil defense program, but there isn't positive engagement either. It's like the media was like pretty well it's supportive in the sense that they would repeat things that civil defense like asked them to repeat a lot of the time. But it was not the case that, oh, well, uh there was a sustained sort of like line of support from the, the mass media. It's only in the beginning of the 60s with the fallout shelter push in the early part of the Kennedy administration that intellectual opinion and at least like a lot of the press actually just turned on the civil defense program. The, the reasons for that, like it's actually kind of obscure. There's a very good book about this by uh, Frank Rose about specifically like the, the fallout shelter, in, both in American culture and in politics in this era. But it's a little bit mysterious as to exactly what it was that struck such a raw nerve. Like part of it seems to have been anxieties over the Berlin crisis. Part of it was that the Kennedy administration's uh, messaging on this was so ham-fisted that uh, like they really, really botched it. So was the public just, I mean, I'm trying to, because, you know, I, growing up in the eighties, I have all of these memories of fearing, you know, nuclear war, mm -hmm. that, 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 that movie they made the day after was a mm -hmm. big cultural phenomenon. I remember as a child, did the, was the public just kind of, I mean, what was their attitude to the survive, the ability to survive a, a, a nuclear attack? Well, the interesting thing here is that like Paul Boyer, for instance, went back into the late forties, uh, uh, Spencer Weert, for instance. And it turns out that people sort of believe that nuclear war was unsurvivable even in an era when it probably was survivable because there are only a handful of weapons. They're not that high a yield. There aren't enough of them to shellac the whole country. We can actually shoot the delivery systems down. The But even in the 40s, like people had this vision of like, well, there's going to be this post-nuclear hellscape and like everybody's going to die either quickly, quickly or slowly. And of course, like by the 80s, especially though, when there are tens of thousands of weapons, it's like, well, that vision is very, like, it's probably pretty prescient. But in the, you go through this very rapid transition period from the early 50s, when you're still living in that early nuclear world, mm -hmm. to H-bombs are invented, but they're still delivered by these slow, fragile bombers, to ICBMs are invented, but there are not that many of them, and they're actually really unreliable and not very flexible in terms of what they can do to increasingly to the point where you have like reliable uh, systems in like ludicrously large quantities. Yeah. So the public is always kind of skeptical about the mission and generally either people believe like, well, it won't happen or if it does, then I'm definitely gonna die. I won't have to worry about it. Right. So there's actually in the eighties, there was an argument among the anti-nuclear community that no, we need to talk about the post-nuclear environment. This is the, the genesis of the day after is this sort of thinking. Like, well, we need to scare people into thinking the status quo is not okay by telling them, like, you might survive this and wish you hadn't. Civil, the idea of civil defense and the, even surviving the nuclear war, you know, it, it seems like a relic of the Cold War. Like, this is something that doesn't even come up anymore. Um, so how do you, so I have two questions. The first one is, how do you evaluate the history of this uh, you know, now that the cold, that's something that seemed to have died with the Cold War. Well, it's something that in some ways is kind of, is coming back, right? So 
For instance, like in Russia in 2016, there was this sort of war scare around the time of the U.S. presidential election, right? The, and it was the, just incredible to, to me watching from here was that, well, the, the Russian media started talking about civil defense again. And they said, it's like, oh, well, you should know where your nearest bomb shelter is. And the thing that was funny about that is that's still technically a secret. So people started trying to crowdsource the location of the bomb shelters. Like, near, like I'm not sure if there are any bomb shelters that have been built in the post-Soviet period, but there, there are thousands of them in Moscow. You have to know what they look like, but they're everywhere. You know, like they're integrated into parking garages, they're integrated into buildings. It's like the archive that he and I used to research in has a bomb shelter in the basement, like a fairly serious one. The and that bomb shelter is for like the staff of that archive. So they started talking about this again, and like the idea is like, well, there'll be these signals, and, and but it did seem to be like I argue that it's like the 1920s all over again. It's like they wanted to signal to the public, like, oh, there's like a real possibility of a like a a sort of confrontation with the United States and that we're, we're serious about this, but they're not serious to the extent it's like, okay, we're going to reallocate a substantial fraction of the state budget to like actually doing sort of like crash civil defense measures and so forth. Like it seemed, I'm not sure quite how cynical it was, but it struck me as being pretty cynical. Yeah. The, where, whereas like looking back at the Cold War era programs, the, I, I mean, it's, like, it's fairly obvious from the argument in my book is like, I feel like the, Colder civil defense, separate from whether or not it was quote unquote like a good idea, it was unfairly maligned, mm. right? It's like these the people who ran civil defense were trying to save civilization in their own way. And the issue there is that like we like to compare two alternatives. It's like either, okay, so we have civil defense and we have a nuclear war, or we don't have civil defense and we don't have a nuclear war. And Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like things really work that way. It's like the, we nearly had a nuclear war on multiple occasions and like neither we nor the Soviets were prepared. It's like civil defense in the sense of like something that could actually protect a large number of civilians from nuclear war, something that has never existed. So uh, it's something that could plausibly exist, but it would be fantastically expensive. The And it's t into this environment is like the, the sort of thing you can accomplish with civil defense is not the... Uh, it's not this matter of like, oh, well, we're going to come out of the bomb shelters and we're going to recover economically in five years and everything's going to be fine. The, the sort of choice you might have is more between the, the sort of future, post-nuclear future portrayed in the, the famous uh, novel Canticle for Leibowitz and in another one called Ridley Walker. Is anyone here familiar with either of those books? Am I just tossing? Well, you are. Okay. So Canticle for Leibowitz is my favorite post-nuclear novel of the 1950s. And it's set several thousand years in the future after a nuclear war in what used to be the American Southwest. And so essentially, like, the nuclear war reduced civilization to a medieval state of society. And eventually, they recover and, like, sort of go into space again. And then, to spoiling it in the book, they have another nuclear war. But the monk protagonists escape our solar system in a starship and continue the apostolic secession in interstellar space. It's actually a great book. I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. So Ridley Walker is another post-nuclear novel that ca it was, came out in 1980. It's set also several millennia in the, f in the future in what was formerly southeastern uh, England. And so the premise of this novel is that humans survived the nuclear war, but civilization was permanently crippled. So they've been living at basically an early Iron Age level of society for several thousand years and have no prospect of escaping it. The, so the question there, the, I think the sort of thing you could reasonably uh, accomplish is like the immediate aftermath of the nuclear war might not look that different in those two scenarios. 
but one of those scenarios is definitely better than the other one. Yeah. The but at the same time, it's like this entire enterprise is like the way that we use nuclear weapons strategically. It's like it is a historical accident. It's like there's no reason, especially for the kind of large arsenals that we and the Soviets developed, mm -hmm. right? It's like other countries. All of them have actually satisfied themselves like, okay, well, we want nuclear weapons. We don't want that many nuclear weapons. It's like a few hundred is plenty, right. right? The Like, we don't need tens of thousands of weapons. And you could argue about whether that dynamic emerged because there's this bipolar environment in which trying to chase U.S. and Russian numbers is just not feasible. Or if that's just because there's not really a, much of a logic to having these large arsenals and plans to use them and the... Mm -hmm. You would think it's like if uh, McGeorge Bundy was right and, well, one nuke actually going off is enough to deter anyone from, like, anything, at least anything rational, then, like, the, the larger arsenal does it deter better because you've got more. Right. And you can make theoretical arguments for why, but those theoretical arguments are not necessarily compelling. And finally, um, Nuclear, the nuclear proliferation is, of course, still an issue. Our mm -hmm. whole policy towards Iran, for example, is based on preventing nuclear weapon, Iranians developing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, the threat of, you know, nuclear war is still exists. Um, I, I remember the part of the reason why I was decided to do this series is because the um, Bulletin of Atomic Sciences, the doomsday clock has moved closer uh, to midnight than it did after the Cold War. Uh, yet, there doesn't seem to be much of a popular public discourse about, you know, nuclear destruction as there was in the, you know, the, when I was growing up in the 80s. Right. So how, what, how do you make sense of that? Like, what is your view of that? It may be that we're just catching up to the new reality, right? Because even a few years ago, it seemed like, well, the bad old days are firmly behind us. Mm -hmm. So th this is how I ended up making the jump from, uh, like, historian to policy, right? It's like, I was interested in this nuclear stuff. And back when I was in grad school, it's like, it was all purely historical. You know, it's like, I went to Russia. I had a letter, like, saying, it's like, please let me in your archive and let me see the stuff about nuclear war planning. And, like, the, like, the archive ladies were actually pretty receptive to that. <laughs> this was during the reset. It was a different time. And... You know, like the the battle days were firmly behind us, and the battle days are really coming back in a in an unpleasant sort of way, right? But it takes a couple of years for the people to make the movies and the TV shows and the write the novels, and the it doesn't help that a lot of the pop culture is actually kind of trivialized this because it's using sort of like the duck and cover atomic cafe sort of. I'm thinking of the Fallout series of video games in particular, right? That all like turning the post nuclear environment is sort of like this big joke. Uh, and like what's interesting is that in the Soviet Union you don't have this much atomic culture like it was actually it, it did exist on a small scale but it was actually strongly discouraged to have like these discussions of the post-nuclear environment and this is like the Russians have made up for lost time with things like the Metro 2033 phenomena right, right? so I, I, to contextualize that so there is this incredibly popular series what do you call them science fiction novels yeah, that maybe yeah. I mean, they're post-apocalyptic novels set in the Moscow metro after a nuclear war. The and so like, how many of them are there? It's like like they, they've brought in guest authors. There may be like dozens. Yeah, of there's these video things games too. Yeah, yeah right. like they're the series of video games were actually like tr brought here. Yeah. Like there's a movie if I remember. Right. So you think you think that this is, there's going to be a comeback? Oh yeah, well I think it, like it it has definitely come back in the in some ways, but it's not quite in the 1980s sort of vein yet. It's like the 
it's like we have this, this post-apocalyptic fiction, but it's just a license for neo-barbarian violence. Uh, I think it was, was it Brian's? It's like there was a critic who used that line. Uh -huh. So it's a, the, describing back in the 80s, like the survivalist fiction. Uh -huh. But I think that it hasn't quite sunk in yet that like the, the possibility of some sort of confrontation, especially now that the thing that people in the policy space worry about more are, for instance, like the North Korea scenario, yeah, right? right. Like, and that is another, is, so the, the extent there's currently a policy discussion about, like, well, should we think about civil defense again? It's because uh, not the Russians, uh, even though, like, the Russians are a bigger worry than they were a few years ago, but rather it's like, well, there's this North Korea issue. The, there are concerns, rightly or wrongly, that, well, Kim Jong-un is like, it might be that the regime is collapsing, maybe through no fault of ours, right? It's like the regime just is, like, collapsing, and the the leadership there basically thinks decides like okay well revenge is as rational use of nuclear weapons as any you know it's like launch them if you got them it's like like who needs the like like who needs the world without us in it you know and that might be just purely paranoid it's like i actually think that while brutal and ruthless like kim jong-un actually acts like surprisingly like he's a rational actor in the way that he behaves it's like uh I don't th I don't think that he would like just wake up one morning and do something like this. But right. there's a concern that like more nuclear proliferation gives more opportunity for you know, like insane or irrational leaders to actually try and use these things in ways that like, well, if they're not rational, are they deterrable? And like if they're not deterrable, then doesn't matter how much we've got. The, so it's it's a it's a difficult sort of environment. But I don't think we've quite processed that into the pop culture yet. It's yeah. like we're still in the sort of like mockery kind of phase so in 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 the the return to a kind of nuclear arms race or potential return to it is there a, a fear on both sides in the united states and in russia of a potential preemptive strike so the fear on the russian side is actually quite acute so you read the russian defense literature they are actually not only are they afraid of a preemptive strike but they're particularly afraid of this notion that we could somehow develop a conventional disarming strike capability so the idea being that we produce enough precision conventional munitions that we can plausibly destroy their nuclear retaliatory force without having to resort to nuclear force ourselves. And of course, that would be an astronomically more credible threat than trying to do it with nukes like we uh, postured to do during the Cold War. The, the Russians, I interpret recent statements by Putin as actually an, att an attempt by the Russians to signal that they no longer have interest in trying to preempt us. So during the Soviet period, there was this notion that, well, they were going to somehow do what they called an uprejdayushi udar, which is different from a preventivny udar. The, so... The idea, the difference being like the preventive udar is like you have the preventative strike, you attack, and like you launch out of the blue. The preventive udar is like you know that the other side is about to attack and you try and hit them before they hit you. The, this was kind of a little, it was never really practical, but ideologically it was determined that they had to frame things in those terms. So like the Soviets developed all of this counterforce targeting capability for what we would call damage limitation, even though they never really got remotely to the point where they thought that they could do that practically. So Putin has said recently that like, we do not have a preventive udar strike doctrine. It's like, and it's like I, I actually believe him because like, even though you wouldn't necessarily believe the words that come out of Putin's mouth, I do believe the pattern of their uh, military procurement, and you look at how they're modernizing their nuclear arsenal, it's like, well, if they wanted to a preventive strike, they would 
No, they wouldn't be fooling with nuclear-powered torpedoes and ground-launched nuclear-powered cruise missiles and hypersonic glide vehicles and all these other sort of like crazy things that they're working on. They would take the new, the replacement for the SS-18, the Sarmat ICBM, and they would build as many of those things as possible and they would put as many warheads on them as they could. Like these crazy super weapons are consuming a lot of resources that they could be sinking in a counterforce potential and they aren't doing that. And I think that that is on purpose. And what about on the American side? Is there a concern of a preemptive strike? By the, the Russians, Russians, from the Russians. Well, they, I think that there's still a bit of a, a hangover from the Cold War. It's like we have not adjusted to the extent it was like the Russians are explicitly signaling that they're doing things differently. And for a long time, like nukes were on the back burner. We were trying to draw down and like, so like the Russians were drawing down. And the idea being is like, well, we're just like going down to the sort of future where we actually were not planning, despite the prog speech, we weren't planning on going to zero, but the, the, idea like Obama floated this idea is like we should go down to a thousand. Like the current numbers under the new start treaty are fifteen fifty like new start reportable weapons, which there's like complicated counting rules. But the he proposed we go down to a thousand. The Russians didn't respond. Turns out that they think that if they go down too much below the current numbers that if we try and preempt them that they won't have a retaliatory strike capability left. So there seems to be a political consensus over there that they can only go down a little bit from the current numbers. And they actually say things. It's like, oh, these super weapons allow us to go down below where we otherwise would have. The, so the Russians, from at least in terms of like full-scale war, it's like they officially have like an assured retaliation policy. And they're trying to signal that both explicitly and implicitly in ways that I think actually imply that they mean what they say. On our end, they're... Uh, I mean, you run the numbers, and the reason that, like, the preemptive strike doesn't make sense on the Russian side is because the bulk, like, the, the lion's share of our nuclear forces are on submarines, right? During the Cold War, there were these concerns that, like, well, maybe the Soviets will invent some sort of technology. They'll be able to find these missile-carrying submarines out in the middle of the ocean and destroy them, pick them off, something. The, a few of those ideas back in the old days had a little bit of plausibility to them, either because the science hadn't been settled yet or because of the way old-timey forces were operated. None of that applies anymore. Like the Russian Navy, it's actually mostly devoted to protecting their submarines. And they have like a bit of an expeditionary force that they sent to Syria, but it's like compared to the Soviet Navy, uh, like it's just not uh, enough of a force to do more than the things that they think are absolutely necessary just to keep us from coming up and like destroying their stuff that they care about. That was Edward Geist, an associate policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. His research interests include Russian defense policy, civil defense, artificial intelligence, nuclear weapons, and particularly the potential impact of emerging technologies on nuclear strategy. His new book is Armageddon Insurance, Civil Defense in the United States and Soviet Union, 1945 to 1991, published by University of North Carolina Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. 
Until next time, bye. the drink that you don't pour. Now when you take one sip, you won't need any more. You're small as a beetle, a big as a wheel. Boom! Atomic cocktail. Falls a splice all around the place. When you see it coming, just grab your suitcase. It'll send you through the skies like air mail. Boom! Atomic cocktail. You push your button, turn the dial. Your work is done for miles and miles. When it hits, it's bound to shake because you feel just like an earthquake. That's the drink that you don't pour. When you take one sip, you won't need any more. You're small as a beetle, a big as a whale. Boom! Atomic cocktail.